This episode of The Moment is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code MOMENT. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, the show's about to start. Um, I just want to say, and I've wanted to say this for a couple of weeks and I haven't, the music that you're hearing is all performed by Joe Hardy. He plays the guitar, the drums, the bass, all of it. Uh, Joe is a great record producer, engineer, guitar player. He's worked on albums like by The Replacements and Steve Earle and ZZ Top. He's a legendary guy. We've been friends for a very long time and wrote some songs together. And these two songs are songs that uh, that I wrote and that uh, Joe is good enough to uh, put this incredible music to and then um, good enough to let me use it on the show. So, hey, Joe Hardy, thanks, brother. That music that I'm talking about, it's about to start. It's going to start right now. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is James Legras, the truly great actor who has um, been in so many movies you know, from Drugstore Cowboy to Living in Oblivion to a television show Justified. Um, and and uh, here, here's the thing. Um, people play this game... Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? <laughs> yeah, he's a wonderful actor. Which, as you know, he's stuff. awesome. But as you know, people say the thing is that he, because of how much he worked, you can connect him to almost any actor in Hollywood history within just a, a very limited number of steps. Two or three. But I had this theory coming into you showing up today, James. Yes. That he has nothing on you in that capacity. Well... I can say, as uh, as an actor who's been around, uh, I, I feel confident that we have that that both of those unwanted skills. Um, for you know, Kevin's a more prominent actor in my view. Uh, not that I'm comparing, but what, what I do or what I'm known for is uh, is for being the greatest soft focus actor of his generation. Uh, uh, um, what does that mean? Well, you know, like the main guy is in focus, and then there's usually another guy over one shoulder or another who's just a little soft. Well, it depends on if it's a long lens or a... <laughs> well, I'm you know, just saying, you yes. know. No, yeah, what you're known for, though, is, uh, you know, first of all, you know, doing, yes, always really high-quality work. But I put, I just want to say, before we talk about sort of like, yes... I don't know if it's always that high-quality, Brian. I hate to interrupt, but I remember I had a meeting with Milos Forman once many years ago. And what did he say? As I handed him my resume, he said to me, and I quote, that's not a resume, that is an accident report. (laughs) (laughs) That says much more about Milos. Wow. Milos Foreman than it does about you. I love him forever for that. Uh, Listen, I I was going to say, I mean, look, Milos Foreman, he is one of those people who he, like Werner Herzog, I mean, if he said that to me, I might quit. Right. Most people, my whole thing is to say, don't quit. You no. can chase your dream and Don't follow quit. through. Well, actually, you, you, that's the only way you get out of show business is quitting. Yeah, David Mamet says um, you just have to refuse to go home if you want to succeed. Yet if if Milos Forman, who made Mozart. Sure. And One, one Flew Over the, the Cuckoo's, cuckoo's nest. nest. People versus Larry Flint. I mean, if he told me to quit, I'm, I might consider quitting. Well, that's where you and I differ because that sounds like a reasonable request from a, uh, a from a wise and experienced artist, and I I am more I put myself in the category of the unreasonable, 
which reminds me, is like a Peter Honky plant thing called the unreasonable or dying out. And that's where I like to put myself. You have to be uh, unreasonable to think that you can do this stuff. One has to be unreasonable. Listen, you know, that, remember that actress, wonderful actress, Ruth Gordon? Of, co- of course. And uh, she said something once. Harold and Maude, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah many other things. Uh, yes. She said something once. And this is sort of like, this is, you know, the, the carpe diem, you know, my, 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 uh, I don't know what you call that, but it's what I live by. And uh, and she said, under no circumstances, under no circumstances, ever face the facts. Under no circumstances. Under no circumstances, ever face the facts. Well, I think that uh, people often will say to me, working working artists will sometimes say, like, dude, you tell people that they should keep at this stuff, uh, but isn't it? unrealistic and isn't it uh aren't you sending them down some road that has an uncertain ending and and i always think uh every road has an uncertain yeah, ending we, we're all we're all well we all have the same it's a certain ending we all know what the ultimate yes. ending is so you might as well try to well, like be really alive while you're alive it has a certain ending but yeah. let me just say this yes i put your name into the kevin bacon machine i <laughs> Yeah, okay. because I needed to see if I was right. Mm-hmm. And so let me just say, how many steps do you think you are from Clark Gable? Two. Yeah, I know. Two steps from Clark Gable. Tell you, here's something you might not know. I did a movie years ago, a terrible movie called The Ladies Club, I think it was called. And somebody who worked in the art department, this guy, Maurice Zuberano, he was a sketch artist and he worked on Citizen Kane. So, um yeah, but they, but even just through actors, oh, that's a good movie by the way, Citizen Kane. I've heard. You know what's great is that now in uh in the show notes here uh because Jason my producer always puts show notes up yeah. so that people can look of like the movies and books that are referenced. I mean, to this is already now people are going to have to go watch Harold and Maude, which is a great movie to go watch. Great movie. Citizen Kane. Because you know, a lot movie. of people haven't seen that movie, and it's um, as good as, like, sort of, it's the same sort of thing as um, The Seventh Seal. You, you always heard Great The Seventh movie. Seal. Well, yeah. But I remember for years, I don't know watch The Seventh Seal because of both the way Woody Allen's characters would talk about those movies, and then in Diner, when uh, <laughs> Steve Guttenberg says, I, 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 Daniel Stern, I never saw death walking on a beach. I've been to the beach a lot of times, and I, I never saw <laughs> death walking there. And. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I don't want to see that film. And then you see it and you go, oh, that's like the best thing ever made by anybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, but So they're going to get this. So here's the thing. Though, even with actors, it goes, uh, James Legros was in Infinity. Sure. You know who, you were, who, who connects you to Gable in that movie? I, I don't know who connects me to Gable. James Hong, who was in Soldier of Fortune okay. with Clark Gable. Wow. Let's go. Uh, and by the way, Kevin Bacon, too. You, he's the same as you. Two steps from nice, Clark Gable. Nice. Let's go to Marlon Brando. Okay. How many do you think you are from Brando? Uh, I don't know. Two or three. Yep. Two again. Wow. You were in Just Looking. Yeah. In 1995. I was. With Marshall Bell. Oh, my God. Marshall Bell. Who was in The Brave. That's right. With Marlon Brando. Just a couple more because it's so fun. Uh, the other night I showed my daughter Casablanca. Oh, yeah. You know, 
could be my favorite movie ever. Certainly it's pretty one great. Of you would have fit wonderfully in that cast, don't you think? I think I could have done a part in that show. You would have killed it. <laughs> uh, you were in the classic Panther. Yes. With uh, Ralph Moratz. Mario Van Peebles. Well, we're going to get to that because <laughs> we both have worked with Mario and we did that together. But uh, Ralph Moratz, who I can't picture, was in Sabrina. Okay. Perfect movie. Right. With Humphrey Bogart, my friend. Wow. Two steps away from Humphrey Bogart. And I think we can end it there. The point is, if you haven't worked with everybody, you've come pretty damn close. Yeah. It, you know, I think that's what happens just by staying alive a long time. It's the collateral effect of a long journey. But staying alive and continuing to really like do the work, right? I mean, not just staying alive, but actually to stay engaged well, I, with I will this pursuit. I, I will say this. You know, I, I've been in a lot of movies, and some of them are, have been very good, and some of them have been near misses, and some of them have just been terrible. And that pretty much of anybody I know that has had a working career over 30 years, 35 in my case, everybody, that describes everybody. Just because it's just, there are so many things at play when you're trying. It's hard to make a good movie. It's hard to make a bad movie. It's just hard. And when you're trying to accomplish something in a group, uh, there's so many variables for things to go not the way you had envisioned them. So how do you go into them with optimism or hope? Well, yeah, I guess I'm just dumb enough to believe it, I think. I don't know. I mean, I, I have to say, one thing I've learned over time, and you, I'm sure, have learned this too, just in terms of an approach to work as an artist, um, the, over the long journey, bitterness is the biggest enemy. Because, one, nobody uh, roots for the bitter guy. And then I think it just it informs your work, and, and uh, then you withhold. And then when you start holding back... Then, then you're not risking, and then your work suffers. Yeah, because bitterness is a form of fear, right? Bitterness is a form of giving up. Yeah, and of yeah. surrender. I but think. But it's a, and I understand how it happens. But you have to be very, you have to really guard against that. But did you ever have moments of? Because it seems to me from the outside that your journey has been one of actually trying to become more open. And more willing. Uh, I would say, but I think that's a, I think that's another kind of aspect of doing something for a long time. Uh, you, you, I think you get more confident, right. and and so things that a process that you were attached to. I read a great interview with um, Willem Dafoe, and he was talking about how his process had changed over the years, and then he started out. I could be wrong about this, but my impression of the article was that he started out with kind of a fixed process. And over time, it became much more flexible. And to the point he was at now, uh, he let the material dictate the process. Yeah, sure. And I, and, and I would say that I feel similar. Which is a, another way of saying to really be present in... Uh, allowing the thing to take you over now and 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 also i would say just the flip side of that i know a guy very talented guy i don't know him well but you know, a little bit and uh, he has a very fixed process and he does it the same pretty much same way for everything he does and he's amazing he's amazing but you know that isn't always fit for everybody yes but well it's true like i've had friends work with an actor who's absolutely one of the greats of a tight, a titanic actor. Um, 
And they say that when they're there working with him, nothing comes back because it's all, he's all, the guy's only working from the inside and on the inside and, and, and by himself. Yeah. And, and he also works, uh, just as a practical measure, this, this guy, I know, I know. we may be talking about the same. We person, might we be, but not. he works at a certain price point. And I'm going to tell you, I've made movies on a range and there, you just couldn't do that. There would be no time for that. I, m- I remember, I can just think of one scene. I did this movie with this friend of mine, uh, Larry Fessenden, and my friend Joe directed it. And we were shooting this scene in the cellar of this uh, house. And uh, it was a, supposed to be a night scene. And so we had the kind of like the tented. And, and uh, I was to go down in the cellar. And there was like, the, before the scene started, the other actor had to have this sort of moment. And then I enter. And right before I entered, the the dubatine sort of peeled off behind me. Right, that's the black stuff that keeps the light out, out of directed the, out where of the room, you want right? to direct it. So yeah. I had to, I'm hearing him start the scene, but I'm having to tie this off before I go in. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, we got to make this movie. We want to get the shot. We got to schedule. Right. And, uh, and then we go on and we, you know, the, and we do the take. And the take's fine. I don't know if we use that take or not, but, you know, it was among many and it was fine. But I'm pretty sure that guy couldn't have done that. Right. He, no, he would be distracted by that. Well, it's interesting you said that because you're very close friends with Julianne Moore. Yeah, Julie. Julianne Moore, yeah. And I heard her interview the other day um, by uh, Alec Baldwin, and she said uh, that she just likes to keep talking right up until... Yeah, she's like that. I've done a four movies with Julie, and um, the f- second movie we did together... I, the the filmmaker wasn't terribly experienced, and so he was always reluctant to call action because he didn't want to interrupt us because they could hear us over the headphones, right? Because we were mic'd before yeah. the scene. And finally, I had to just say, "Just you just gotta say action, and we'll shut up, and we'll and it'll go. Don't worry about it." Well, yeah, but but it is uh, you can see how early on in somebody's career they would think that the actor would have to say some kind of uh, incantation to herself, would have to. And some, some actors... And some do. And, and, and I want to say, even the person you were talking about who has this certain kind of process, um, like to me, um, as long as the person's not a, a dick to the people around them, whether this person is or not... Uh, you know, I don't know. I haven't worked with them. I've, you know, I, I have a lot of friends. But, but, but I mean, some people are and some people... But I'm saying he's a genius. What do I know? Yeah. Well, but, but if the person's not a dick, then like if somebody needs... To have those quiet moments to become who they are, or if somebody ra- would rather talk, it's like whatever their artistic process is 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 fine. But as a director, figuring that out is like a lot of the trick to doing the job. Yeah, is, is how do I help this person? Well, it's funny. I, I listened to a very interesting interview with Stanley Kubrick in 1968. It might have been one of the last ones he did. He was good. I, you know, pretty much. Um, Barry Lyndon, folks. If there's one you haven't seen, oh, that's Barry Lyndon, one. if you haven't seen that one, go see that one. But this Marshall interview. Bell's wife, Mirlena Cannonero, did costumes on that and won the Academy Bloody Award. On Barry Lyndon. On Barry Lyndon. So you're sick like how close you are to... I'm just saying. You're right there. I'm just you, saying. You and Marshall did uh, that other movie together. I could play it off like I remember which one, but I don't. Just uh, looking. You did just looking together. Indeed. Uh, I think we also did leather jackets, too. These are real gems here. <laughs> So from the family went from Barry Lyndon to leather jackets. He did, not her. She's too. Uh, she wouldn't deign to do something like that. Jace, I think uh, when you put uh, since you put them all, when you put leather jackets in the uh, show notes, you don't have to underline it. <laughs> you don't have to underline it, right, James? <laughs> Maybe not. I don't think you need to. Carrie underline Elways it. was in that. Well, I love Carrie. He was in that. He's funny. He's a funny guy. He's a good actor. Who else? Is, uh, Danny Sweeney was in that. And, uh, oh God. But what did Kubrick say? 
Well, he was talking about, you know, with actors, a lot of, it was his experience, you know, that he didn't have much trouble with them, but when you did, you know, and you wanted them to do something, it was usually because they were uncomfortable doing it because they didn't think they could. And he said, you know, hopefully you cast actors that have the range for necessary for the part so they're never you're never in that situation or you know if you put a good persuasive uh you know uh, argument forward or description forward he said it always worked right well also he knew how to really communicate with people and he took he would take as long as he needed to and he built his yeah. whole thing like as an artist when you talk about being unreasonable he was incredibly unreasonable in the pursuit of the dream that was in his head, right? Yeah, I sub- I would imagine. I mean, you know, he had a, you know, like Fincher too. He's got a process that's his own that not a lot of people could do. You know, but on Fincher's side of it, you know, with all the takes and reshoots, his attitude is I agree at a price point. And deliver it. And I deliver it. So what I do up to that is none of your business. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's uh, amazing to me that the Cone brothers who delivered basically something perfect every time, they, you know, uh, are able to work so so quickly, like Soderbergh. Yeah. Um, and they, pl- you know, where, and it's interesting too because Steven is so free. Uh, he'll, you know, he'll, he can plan it ahead or find it. And the Cones, like, really. It's very didactic, very. They, plan, they really yeah. are, they really methodical. plan in, meth- in a methodical way what they're going to do. And yet. There's this incredible. I think Gus Van Sant is a, more of a a painter, if you will. He sort of has to be in the process. To, well, I want to talk about Gus experience. and Drugstore Cowboy, but I want to, uh, and we will in a second. But uh, more generally, after this much time doing this, what do you look for in a, a director? Not when you take the job. Once you're there, like, are you going in thinking? okay, this is really going to be a collaboration. Do you now know, okay, I can protect myself? Like, what are you, are you leaning on the actors always? How, how do you think about that? Can a director bring stuff to you that's a pro? I try, you know, I t- actually I try to have an open mind all the time. You know, sometimes, you know, because I, because I cover a range and I work with a lot of new people, um, you know, sometimes you're in the position where you, you have to guide them through some things. Um, in a, in a way you that you wouldn't otherwise have to guide them through. You mean you mean speak to them very plainly about what you need to do your. To well, do I would just say more what the priorities are. Oh, um, like hey, if you want to get your date, it sounds like uh, on a wedding night giving uh, your bride the joy of oh, sex God. or something. I thought I turned this bloody. By thing Alex off. Comfort. Sorry. You want to answer your I'm phone? Trying to just turn it off. It's fine. Uh, we're just this is a podcast, not making a movie. Yeah, I know, but I. Is it is it uh, one of your kids? Is it no, just, your wife? It's nobody. Is it an I mean, it's agent? A call. I don't know who it is because they don't. Maybe it's had, Brad Pitt. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if it were Brad right now? You know, he never calls. Rarely, he never calls. I've gotten. Yeah, he we used to be neighbors a long time ago. I got two emails from. I've gotten two emails from him in my life. Yeah, and um, believe me, you notice when. I would imagine his email address is comes up. Mm-hmm, sure. You do notice. You kind of have the urge to call everybody around the computer to read Say, it. can you look at this? The kid, like, I did. I think I did call my son in the last time. Literally, I've gotten two emails from him. And I, I uh, five years ago, and I called my son, and I was like, look, look what this says. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What's your most exciting show business meet? You know, somebody that you've met, you were like, I will answer that question. 
weirdly, I mean, there was so okay. I mean, the, the meeting that got me the, the most nervous and then delivered on it was Dave, my, you know, my filmmaking partner, yes. David Levine, and I got to have a meeting with Scorsese <gasps> and De Niro together. <gasps> Marty, I, and I always hate people who call him Marty, but if you know him, that's what you call he him. Makes you call, that's what you call him. Marty uh, was going to direct this thing, and uh, De Niro w- was going to star in it. It was an adaptation that Dave and I had done of uh, a book called The Winter of Frankie Machine by the great Don Winslow, who's going to be on this podcast soon. And he's a great um, author. And uh, when we started writing the, the, the adaptation, our goal was those two guys. The studio, we all were like, maybe we could get Marty and Bob for this thing. And I had never, at that time, they were Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro for this thing. And I remember, you know, you walk in and, and Marty is, uh, so, you know, here's what I, here's what I liked about you, didn't hear, you know, oh there are plenty of things I didn't like about it, but, but, but let me, let's, let's talk, it's exciting stuff. And then Bob would go, I mean, uh, you know, on the page, you've met him, right? Bob, I, I, yes, I mean, for, twice. Once, many years ago, after he was doing a play called Cuban is Teddy Bear, and they were going to some after-party thing, and I was in the same limo with him, didn't dare speak to him. Yeah, but this, because they were actually, and then they agreed after this meeting to do it, and then the thing fell apart, which was crushing. Right. For you, what was the first really mind-blowing one? Well, the first mind-blowing experience was I got a letter once from Martin Scorsese. They were trying to get this movie made based on a Walter Kern novel called She Needed Me, which never got made. But He's uh, a terrific writer. He's a wonderful writer. His last book, Blood Will Out, is fantastic. And the one about Princeton's really interesting, too. I didn't memoir. read that one. And, you know, he wrote Up, up in the Air. I know that. I yeah, read that. Yeah. So you, they, they anyway, were trying to make so this, movie. this book uh, that uh, he was going to, Marty was going to produce, and Joe Reedy, who was his longtime first AD, was going to yeah. direct. And, and, you know, and at the time, it was, uh, you know, the 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 theme of the movie, the subject that's handled is abortion. It was just, nobody wanted to touch it. They could never get funding for it, and it never, really, it never ended up happening. But I saved that letter. Of course you did. And, uh, and did you then meet him? Well, it was kind of, no, I never met him. I did never meet him. But, you know, I had that letter. And basically, in the letter, it's like a cover letter, you know, kind of like trying to pitch me on the idea. <laughs> that's awesome. Doing, which, by the way, reminded me of another story that Todd Fields told me about when Kubrick hired him. Yeah, he's the, in uh, Eyes Wide Shut. He's yeah, the piano player. He's a piano player. Shut. And, you know, Todd had, like, stopped being an actor. And somebody, I guess, for his old agent, William Morris, he was going to go back to film school and. And it, became a filmmaker and directed it in the bedroom, and he's a terrific you know, filmmaker. The yeah. guy, you know, and a wonderful actor, too, you know, all of the above. But anyway, he told me this story that, uh, you know, his old agent said, yeah, you know, Stanley Kubrick's trying to find him. He's like, why are you jerking my chain for? But it turned out to be true, right? And so I guess some woman came over to his house driving this beat-up old Lincoln, brought the script, you know, sat there while he read it in his living room. He handed the script back, and then she split. And then he had this phone call with Stanley, and basically with Stanley, like, pitching him, like, you know, Todd, I think this would be a really great thing for you. And, you know, and he's like, what? You just don't even want to speak. You just want to say yes quickly and never say anything else. Yeah, please don't change your mind. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah. wait, so then what was another one? Well, the, f- the first one of, like, meeting somebody, other than Milo Schwarman, which, which didn't have the ending that I wanted it to, I was invited to a dinner party, uh, and uh, at the dinner party was Werner Herzog. Right. And, and he was amazing. He was just great. He was one of those, like, you know, your 
iconic heroes and didn't disappoint everything you wanted him to be oh, that's great he totally delivered jason and i are trying to get him on this podcast <sighs> he is just we had hater on and hater does oh, the yeah. best herzog you could ever do so it was like having him sure here. um how did you meet him what was the circumstance that you well i mean we were at the dinner party and uh, did, my, did you walk over did he come over to you did you have the guts because i'd be well we were all standing around across and crying the room. I, you know we were all it was very casual in my right. friend's house or my agent at the time and uh it was very casual just sitting on the couch you know asked me if i had children and talking about that and where you know how old they were and it was just very natural and then you know got into every other kind of subject and he told me about you know you know, finding somebody in a car flipped upside down and rescuing them from the car, this actor. And it was just a great, you know. No, you imagine it would be like meeting Kurosawa or something where a guy. Yeah, but then, who and, just, and then he's just so quotable, you know. Timothy Treadwell was a delusional alcoholic. That's he a, wanted to believe that nature was a place of harmony and balance when it is really a landscape of chaos and murder. Uh, when he goes, he goes, where Treadwell and I differ, right? <laughs> where Timothy Treadwell and I differ is uh, he sees a, a kind, a fluffy, giant teddy bear. <laughs> and I see murder. And right. I see a dull-eyed animal interested only in killing and eating. You know, and, but that, I'll say that. That was good. I mean, all his documentaries are great. There's one Grizzly Man, though, is, it does... Watching that movie as as someone who believes that there is um, an atheist, but who believes there is real darkness or indifference. Mm -hmm. It's a movie about indifference in the face of like the most amazingly joyful right. optimism. It's right. so brutal. Well, nature's cruel, but nature's ultimately indifferent. It doesn't really care. You yeah. Know? And uh, I love that movie, Grizzly Man. Yeah. One of my favorite Herzog documentaries, a lesser known one, called The White Diamond. If you ever get a chance to see that. that it's, it's, it's a little, it's, it's out there and, and worth seeing. Okay, you know what time it is now? Because that music started. It's stamps.com time. Hey, look, love stamps.com. Really appreciate their support of the podcast. And uh, just today, uh, I'll tell you about this in a few minutes. I was talking to a friend who... Um, just signed up. Look, most of us are trying to find more time every day to get things done. You can't let trips to the post office slow you down. Now you don't have to. Thanks to Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer and printer. Stamps.com will send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package, any class of mail. You'll never waste valuable time going to the post office again. Do everything right from your desk with Stamps.com. Print the postage you need, put it on your letter or package, then just hand it to your mail carrier. You're done. So I was talking to a guest who's been on the show, uh, Michael McDermott, this morning, and uh, he just did this successful um, Kickstarter campaign for two of his albums. He's a great singer-songwriter, and, and by the way, check out Michael's albums on Spotify and iTunes. And he was talking about having to do the fulfillment for these Kickstarters uh, because they were successful, and he funded these two projects. And he said... He's like, you know what I'm doing? I am signing up for stamps.com. And it's, he's a per, it's the perfect kind of thing because that's a small business. It's a small business. He's got an intense amount of stuff he's got to get out. Uh, he's got to fulfill the people who get T-shirts and signed uh, CDs and all that stuff. And he's going to use stamps.com to do it. And that means he can stay home and write his songs because that's what he does, right? His, his music, his art is the thing. 
And uh, if he has to get in the car and go to the post office and maybe he'll forget a new hook that he just wrote or uh, some lyrics will slip out of his head. This way, he's home. He's got the guitar there. He's got the studio there. And he can do his creative thing and then let stamps.com take care of the business. Hey, right now, use my promo code MOMENT for this special offer. No risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Look, don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in moment. That's stamps.com. Enter moment. I want to back up a little bit because um, you talked about how you're more open in your work, but I, I also wonder about, even in like your Twitter bio, it talks about how, uh, you don't like to talk about yourself in public and stuff. And I, I wonder if you were um, more guarded um, in the beginning of protecting, protecting yeah. whatever you thought. I mean, your, honestly, it's you did not have that a lot of like there was a lot of kind of mystery and mystique about you when you were young and making all these independent movies. I, I whether you want to cop to it or not, I do think you intentionally. My guess is that you intentionally kept yourself at a little bit of a remove from. From people really knowing all about you, I, you know, I suppose that sounds like it, uh, it could be that way, but it's really not. It's not uh, true. It's, it's not. I'm just not that interesting of a, of a person. Well, that's I, another I way to. Is, that's like sort of a. Uh, that's like a, a good sort of thing to hide under. Is it? I don't know. I mean, I don't really have a. I don't have a plan B. I mean, this is kind of what you see is what you get. I I did want to get back to you. Asked about, um, you know, when when you work with directors. You know, is there yeah. is there an operating mechanism? And honestly, I, I really all I ever try to do is is what I think they're asking. I, I, that's you want to communicate with you. Want to understand just, what they need and try to. Deliver I just want to do what they want. That's really it. I mean, every now and again, you have to like sort of save people from themselves, but that's that's actually very rare. Yes, I've found. Uh, yeah, you're trying to. Well, I guess I've seen you work like help the actor. And helped her because you and I did. I, I just want to say, you know, um, you and I. If I were doing a proper introduction to you, I would have said uh, you and I share a birthday. That's right. You're a little older than I am, but we shared a birthday, and that we made something together. Um, yeah, we that made was a, good. That was a good show. It really was. They made a mistake. Well, it was the highest testing pilot that they, they made had a mistake, that year, and uh, they didn't put it on because because uh, of a political a concern. political thing. It was a political concern. Yeah. Um, which at another time, I mean, I don't, I don't care. I'll say it. Uh, ABC was putting it on Sunday nights at 10. This was 10 years ago or longer. And the guy running the whole endeavor, corporate level at Disney, um, basically took it off saying... He didn't want an advocacy lawyer, essentially. Yeah, an advocacy show seemed like it was at the wrong time. He, he felt like... Uh, even though he, was, he felt it was too liberal. Not that he, it was too liberal for him. He was famously a liberal. Yeah, yeah, no, but, uh, I get it. What we heard back always was it, it, he felt that the country's mood wasn't such that they would watch, even though it was the highest testing pilot they had that year. But what I was going to say is um, we made this thing and spent four days together, uh, I think, over the course of making this show. Mm -hmm. And whenever we've come into contact since, we have this very intimate and warm connection. It's as if it was like just the next day. And that was a long time ago, maybe yeah. 11 years ago. And every couple of years we've run into one another, connected yeah. and had this thing. And I'm, I'm wondering if now there is something about... Um, you know, because of what I do, I've only made, like, uh, in some capacity, 10 or 11, maybe counting the, all the TV stuff, 15 of these things. Right. You made uh, 
110 of them. And right. I, so for me, it makes sense that I have these connections on all these things. But it seems to me like when I go someplace and I see you there, that you have these kind of like bonds with groups of people that you've done this thing with. And do you find that to be the case? Were you always like that? Were you like that as a, a kid that, that you could make these very real connections with people in short bursts? Do you find that you care? Because it's such an, it, it is a life of uh, going and doing a thing and then disappearing from those people. Like, um, is it important to you? And is it a conscious thing that you make these actual connections when you're doing it? Or does it just I, 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 it's not a conscious thing. I mean, I, I would say I consciously try to figure out where I can be helpful. You know, that's my priority. And I, and I, th- and it sounds like it sounds so Pollyanna, but, but I, but I think that, you know, if you're, I mean, just as simple as walking down the street, you're walking down the street, you see somebody, they're looking at their phone, they're going to walk right into you. Clearly, they're not conscious. And but you are so it's incumbent upon you to to adjust, and and you can build on that idea. So if you have been given a certain amount of consciousness, it's up to you to make the better choice rather than just run into this person. That's uh, I agree with that, and that's a very evolved sort of. Uh, it should be very basic. It's like the kind of thing that like maybe a two year old, you know. A, a five-year-old would know, and then you yeah. got to get to close to like you know fifty to know it again, maybe. But have you, like, because especially because the 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 narcissism based baked into an actor's life very often. Well, it can be, yeah. Yes, well, I think you can strip it off, but it is it it it's so often baked right into. I mean, the I, but that can be like a. I've met, I have met people who run hedge funds sure. that have that, and I have met directors that have that and entrepreneurs that that's transportable to whatever medium you're you're in um but i think with actors uh you know with actors i I don't want to make an excuse i would say that for women uh it's the the pressure is much higher the opportunities are fewer and the window is smaller and so I I have to say I compassionately feel more allowances have to be made for people trying to deal with the pressure of those circumstances. Yes. And I think, and then with actors, kind of at the end of the day, and this sounds like a little bit of an excuse, but pretty much you're just out there armed with a shoeshine and a smile. And if it stinks, it's your face. Yeah, no, it's the vulnerability. It's not only like sort of the vulnerability later, but I do think it's tied into the fact that to have this sort of confidence to ultimately in a moment become that vulnerable. Yeah, and then also you're required to, to you know, do things pretty much when a bell goes off, you know? Yeah. Like you're supposed to perform some kind of something that people have an expectation about. Do, do you know what it felt like? Do you remember when you first connected to acting really strongly? Like when it... When, when the thing happened, you're like, oh, this is, this is a strong drug. Like this is really deep. Um, I think I'd had probably been doing it for a long time before I really had that feeling. Really? Honestly, it sounds terrible to say that, but acting was kind of like one thing. I thought I was going to be a photographer. I didn't think I was going to do this. And then you started doing it young. I started, I got my first job. My first professional job was working for South Coast Repertory Theater, doing a touring children's show. Like 15 shows a week. This is in Mi- Minneapolis? No, this is in Southern California. Well, where'd you grow up? 
I was born in Minnesota. We lived in Minnesota till like 1975, I think. Right. And then going into eighth grade, we moved to Southern California, and then we moved around a lot. And had you thought about acting before that? Not at all. You and you didn't? Did you love I didn't, movies I didn't or think TV? About, I started thinking about acting when I was in high school, and then I started doing it sort of on an amateur level, you know, high school plays, community theater, that kind of thing. And then I did like a summer workshop uh, at South Coast Repertory Theater, and then they had these open auditions for these jobs, you know, like a job, and. Uh, and I got that job. It was a goof to you, you thought, originally? Well, I mean, listen, to me, you know, like I was had a, I was like, at the t- I think I was at the time I was working as a waiter in a restaurant and it just meant all I had to do was like act. I didn't, you know, I was going to make more money than I was making, you know, waiting tables in Laguna Beach. Right. And, and that's all I had to do was go to work and act. Right. And that was, you mean, to you, it was just simple and fun and easy. Yeah. I mean, in the beginning. And then, you know, and then I, you know, and then through that experience, I started doing rep, some rep theater, yeah. like not the job I was doing, but like regular plays. And you, you meet other actors and, and uh, you know, I'd watch these TV shows and I'd think, God, this is terrible. I could do that. Right. You know, I could be that bad. And then, I, you know, I, that I could do that thing is very powerful. I remember reading a script before I started really writing them by somebody who had sold it. I remember yeah. reading it going, like, this, this is not that great. I could do that. I could totally do I that. I could write that. Yeah. I mean, it's um, that kind of naive and that's illusion the great, is but great. you have to have that in the beginning. Like, you have to not know. You have to not know. Otherwise, you'd never start. Yes. Which gets me back to that, you know, that the operating under the paradigm of never face the facts. Because if you face the facts, I, I couldn't get out of bed. I would, I'm so glad that I didn't have uh, Google real when Dave and I sat down to write our first screenplay because I would have known then the odds against it getting sold, getting made, yeah. becoming something. Like, and I, maybe it would have, um, I would have felt daunted and like, oh, it's not worth the time to or, do. Or, I, that's, or that thing that happens to a lot of people where your self-criticism is just crippling and you can't ever get out well, of the I had gate. that for a long time. But, so you never, then I got rid of it. You never had that? I always have that. Right. Okay, good. I mean, no, this but is, I'm saying this you is how ha- I deal with that happened. generally, is I that voice in your head, I don't argue. I just say, you know what, you're right. But I have to do this for like the next hour. So I oh, can't so you're, argue. You're Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind. Is he's that just, what he does? Well, you know, the character just kind of like, uh, he's that, but he's Game crazy. theory. I mean, it's a but remarkable thing that he came up with. That character. That, not yeah. Russell, but the character. Not Russell. No, I mean, well, he's a great actor. I, I love him. Oh, one of the. Yeah. Uh, me too. I'm. But I'm no, I don't know of any. I, you know, I don't know a lot of actors great at math. I mean, I'm sure they're out there, but not. I don't know too many. I'm sure there are a few. There gotta be. Kerry Bechet. Oh yeah. Kerry Bechet is a like a science and math wizard, and you. Rajon Rondo. You might not sure, but uh, Kerry is an actress, and she is man. She's. Uh, shockingly well like more, you just she knows all that stuff she was on this show and started talking about um physics stuff and i was just uh like uh what kind of makeup do you put on uh when you go on set how does it do you apply the base yourself the primer or how does that work one young man i won't say who uh came up to me afterwards and he was like i didn't know people like that existed in the world right and i was like oh you poor thing <laughs> They don't. <laughs> Actually, they don't. There's, if they do, they're on television <laughs> or in the movies. But um, married to George Clooney, or I don't know. I've never met her. I guess she's very smart. Oh, hey, I wasn't you, invited. Have you I ever worked with know. George? 
You know, no. Uh, I knew you were I, on ER, but it was after. Well, uh, yeah, I guess I did. I was in one scene with him on ER, walking down a hallway, as I recall, many years ago. But I used to know George Moore from playing basketball at the Hollywood YMCA. Yeah. I used to play a lot of hoops with him, but you and I never played together. Well. Because we didn't carry, we weren't in a place on Street Lawyer, which was the show we did, where we could carry a court with us. Right. I thought, didn't we shoot, did we ever go to, where did we, where, Cibrian, Eddie and I, so that, that show, Street Lawyer, was um, Eddie Cibrian, Mario Van Peebles, you, and um, Katie Strickland were the regulars on that show. Oh, right. Katie Strickland. Who's become, Katie, who's got a, had a big career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, since then, who, who's great. But um, we did have a fun... Yeah, that was a good set. Did we, did, did we ever go on location on that? I we went to Washington, D.C. together. That's right. Oh, that's what I remember. On that job, sitting on the life cycle next to Pat Riley at the club. Oh, because we were in a hotel that we were had in a, that gym. Yeah, I was in the gym. Yeah, but I was, you were acting. I was working, you were making work. the show, so I couldn't well, you go know, I got to look good in the ball. suit, yeah. right? And there was Pat Riley, and I, I had this, like, sort of this mix of emotions because, you know, he was no longer with the Knicks at that point, and I thought left in a shabby way. Oh, yeah. Do you know my... I have a... Uh, this is you, me interviewing you, and I never talk this much, but I will tell you because this is. Did you say anything to him? I, I, I didn't. I didn't. All right. I'm just going to say I've never done this before. We should probably create a sound effect for this, which is a name drop alert. Okay. Everybody, name drop alert. Clank. Uh, yeah, we got to do something. Yeah, kerplunk. I think you dropped right. something. So this is going to be horrible. One year, Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta Jones have a joint birthday party. Uh, okay. Okay. They have the same birthday 20 years apart. Uh-huh. Um, or his birthday They're probably not having that job. party anymore. They're, I think they are again. Oh, really? I think so. But I don't uh-huh. know. But I, I think. But, I hope um, so. We all hope so. And uh, so Michael I- invites Amy, my wife Amy, uh, I mean, the party. Yes. And the whole time we were shooting a movie together, Michael and I, he would give me shit about the Knicks, and I would give him shit about his best friend, Pat Riley, who I said was like uh, the devil, like the most right. evil person. And interesting, they've sported similar hairstyles. So I didn't know they were friends, but now it all makes sense. Best friends. The wow. hairstyle was taken from each other. I think they would each answer the question differently about right. who stole who, the hairstyle. Who, best friends. And Michael would always say, Pat's the greatest. He, if you meet him, you will not be able to carry this hatred and by the way the Knicks suck and he was smart to leave and I had a moment like you know that moment in Frost Nixon when the guy says he's going to tell the president he won't shake the president's hand and the president yeah. sticks out his hand and he, and he shakes his hand Mr. President it's an, honor. <laughs> <laughs> it's an honor to meet you <laughs> so I go to the birthday party uh, with my Amy and with Levine and his wife and there's Pat Riley and I say to myself you know I have to do it I have to go and tell him how I feel. Mm-hmm. And Amy says, you really, all right, go, go ahead. Let me go do it. Great. And as she describes it from afar, then like I walk over and I'm, I'm like, you know, have this uh, stern expression on my face and I'm marching shoulders squared. And she says like within 10 seconds of saying hi to him, my head's thrown back in laughter. I'm practically <laughs> hugging him. I'm bathing. He, he's laughing. He practically like patted me on the head as I walked away. <laughs> you away. Just okay. completely. I went up to him and um, of course he was like, oh, I heard the movie. And I said, listen, I have to say I was very, and he said, if I were in your shoes, I'd feel 
exactly the same. You have every every right to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what people don't know about. And like, I will tell you that I was, I understand everything about it. He learned success. that move from Tony Robbins. Yeah, uh, Bill Clinton. It's like a world-class move. And it, uh, I love him. I love Pat Riley. Oh, well, Despite, not to, you know, listen, that guy... He's a, he's a legend. So I remember on that show, this is what I'm saying about you having this like mystique. So we weren't sure you would do the show and then you were willing to come in and audition. And then we weren't sure we'd be able to like get you the part because we didn't know if the network would trust that even though you were, had like an indie sensibility that you could do the show. And then we were able to, there's always a process with these, went through the process and you got the part and we were so excited about it. And I remember you even saying, we said, we want to bring you the network. You were like, listen, I appreciate it. It's never going to happen. I remember you were very much thinking it wasn't going to happen. But uh, I remember on set, you know, you kind of did it first, keep to yourself. You, because there were people with very big presence in that. Sure. Doing it. But then there was one really late night. And (laughs) I'm not going to, Dave and I were like, there are these moments when you're, you know, creating something like you're like, overwhelmed by everything and it was like real late we'd been working 18 hours a day sure, like before, you do on a pilot. So all Pilots that stuff are tough. and i remember suddenly I mean, we were leaning against it was outside and you we were leaning against almost i want to say they were like it was outside in a bad part of washington we were like leaning against like almost oil drums or something right. and you just came walking over and it, it was like 3 15 in the morning and somehow you decided at that moment the way to help us out was by telling a middle of the night joke. And you <laughs> you told like a 15 minute. <laughs> That's my favorite thing. I like a long joke with a mediocre payoff. It's That's what you said. And uh do I you know and I know you'll say that none of that is like a a planned thing, but then also you say you try to help people out. Like obviously you had that joke, but something made you decide like, okay, what they need now is these guys look like they need to really laugh. <laughs> It wasn't your job. You were acting. My feeling is, uh, you know, you can have a good time or a bad time. The pay is the same. Yes. Yeah. You were this. You are the single best late night joke teller <laughs> I've ever met, except for Bob Einstein. You know who's Bob very, Einstein's the only one I've ever met. A very better. good late night joke teller is is the actor Ron Perlman. I have to say. Oh, I believe that. And a good, a excellent storyteller. No one smokes a cigar better. He he's a he's just a funny guy. Um, I've never met him. Uh, he played. I wish he did guy. more comedy. I know he plays these heavy things, and he's so great at that too. But he's he's just he's just a naturally he's funny hilarious guy. in Hellboy. But I want to um, really funny in the Hellboy movies. Well, kind of. I think really funny, intentionally really funny. Um, so you start doing this. Uh, I want to. You start acting. You do this rep theater. You look at the TV people. You think, oh, I could do this. Sure. But at that time, does acting give you this special feeling? Are you starting to, like, when did it become for you um, where it started to become a, a calling or where you began to have other ambitions? You know, I, I, I think that uh, where I, when I really thought of myself as an actor was probably not long after I had worked on Ally McBeal so that's about 15 years ago and um, and I'm very grateful for my time there but it was not a pleasant experience just in terms of a working environment right why I think that um, the scripts coming well I think well I think the show was on the decline and so that's never fun for anybody but I think that uh, 
people I that had I had the feeling that people for the most part felt hired and not vested. And I think that when you're not feeling vested in the thing, it's easy to have a lot of insecurity and that can demonstrate itself in a lot of ways and I think people were largely unhappy or at least that was my observation. Well, how does that feeling get communicated? Like, how does that feeling like kind of grow in you? And what could they have done to? For make me, it I mean, I was happy. It was I was happy to be anywhere. just happy to be hired. I was just happy to be hired. <laughs> but you mean the thing was David Kelly, like because the scripts well, would come in the way, late. Of, uh, David, you know, he's obviously one of the genius. You know, one of the great yeah, no, TV I'm writers. A great TV writer. Um, you know, but a sort of an absentee landlord in a way. Right. And so I think a lot of people were felt. You know. They were trying to interpret things, and I don't feel like... And oh, I, they couldn't so, engage. You mean he, they weren't engaging with yeah, it? Yeah, I think... So I think there's just a lot of doubt that can happen, and, you know, maybe... I don't know if that's his fault or not. Who no, I had knows? a friend who was a writer on that writing staff and said it was very difficult. Well, as far as that goes, I read, a, I read a bunch of spec... I read a bunch of scripts that never got made... That were great. That other writers on the staff. Well, writers some writers on, on that staff, staff have gone on to great success. Other writers on that staff that wrote that never got made into episodes. And and I felt, my feeling was, is that by the time I was on the show, um, things that I had seen in previous episodes were reappearing but, but why at that did point? that give you a call a sense of so why did that sort of well, didn't bother give me you a sense of call I say, but what started us is when did you start to get like a real, well, call, after, feel like a calling I as guess an actor? after that experience... It wasn't a great experience. And then it it sort of reframed like my priorities. And then, uh, and then I, you know, and then I just other jobs. Reframe them how? Um, I, it, it, career moves and money didn't seem subordinate to whether or not I was going to have a good time. That explains the beard. <laughs> yeah. My Rip Van Winkle I understand beard. the beard now. I felt like... You know, I just, I just want to, I just want to have a good time. So, right. You really, so, cause I was going to say, it's interesting to me because you'd had huge success before. Like you were, one thing is, you know, you had sort of, I know you said at the beginning of this, you know, you're the guy next to the guy, but, yeah. but in Drugstore Cowboy and Living in Oblivion, sure, you had really huge roles in movies that were culturally significant. And that was, they were both before Ally McBeal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how much currency that has with people at, at networks of television. No, shows, but, but I'm but, saying, but in terms of as an artist, like you, as an artist, I would I would have thought that working with Gus, and I'm wondering about it. Well, that was you, a great experience. I mean, actually, the, I feel like Drugstore Cowboy was really the first movie I was in that was any good. I'd done a lot of movies before that. Yeah. Did that feel different somehow when you were doing it? It did, you know, and that's wow. another thing. Well, again, it gets back to feeling vested, like your ideas matter. What you bring will have an impact. Your point of view is valued. Um, and, and uh, you know, and Gus would, you know, on that movie, and I, 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 from what I gather on movies that have followed, you know, he has a, he is a very adaptable filmmaker in a lot of ways. I mean, I think he knows what he wants, and he has a very good, you know, aesthetic sense and sense of the truth. But I remember once on that film, uh, you know, he just had an idea about a scene. It wasn't in the script. And, you know, just about a conversation that, you know, I was having with Matt's character. 
And uh, it's Matt Dillon, Kelly Lynch, Heather Graham, and you in that movie. And yeah, and it was uh, just a dolly shot. And in fact, if you look at the DVD or if you see it even projected, you'll if you look carefully at the bottom of the frame, you'll see the dolly track in the background. Um, just for those who I care, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and so we're going. Well, it's two shot of us walking down this dolly track. The camera pulls back as we're walking forward, and and um, camera pans off of the. Uh, sign that says Josephine Apartments and Matt says why did why do they call it the Josephine Apartments and none of this is scripted right that line is not scripted I didn't know he was going to say that line why do they call it the Josephine Apartments and I said I don't know uh, the guy that rented it to me was named Dale maybe Josephine sounds better and that was the scene <laughs> right I don't like I don't know and so you felt he was saying to you, take ownership of this character they, and this yeah, world. Yeah, so in that, in that movie, I have to say, of all the movies I've done, you know, it was based on a very rambling s- book by uh, Fogel and then adapted into a screenplay. And uh, that was the most heavily improvised movie I've ever worked on. Um, and, and uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm sure that, that uh, Gus has been very... Much more to the script, but I think on that picture, that was really a blueprint. And I think he was interested in these other things. And you think that the fact that, well, because the movie has this sort of, um, although there's a strong narrative in it, there is also this like sort of strong impressionistic thing going on because. But I don't know if that was in his original concept or for that developed in the editing. I have a feeling it developed as as he was editing it. And then they made a change in editors when Kurt. Curtis Clayton came on, and and the the film took a big step up. Did, uh, did you know when you were making it that that like for instance that Heather was going to become a star? Could you tell that the light hit her in a different way than other people? Uh, I you know I didn't know anything. I mean, it was at the time I just thought it was going to be this fun job, and who knows if anybody's going to see it. You didn't even know that it was like um. As you're saying, you were enjoying doing it, but you I had a great time was... doing it. Uh, in fact, I t- couldn't get in on that movie. As a matter of fact, my agent was like, "Nah, they don't want to see you." And I was like, oh, "Okay." And I had been working with a couple other actors who had auditioned for it, you know, like helping them on the scenes. And then I got a phone call from Lori Parker, who I had done a directing workshop with Jose Quintero, and she was in it as well many years ago. And I worked on her grad film at UCLA with her a little bit. And she remembered me from all those years ago and said, hey, uh, you might be right for this part because the part I was, uh, the part that I did, uh, Rick, I think they read more actors for that part than the total of all the others. And they were having a hard time. They just couldn't find him. Whatever, whatever they couldn't find. I think, and so I think it kind of came down to, and I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure it came down to me and Flea. Right. And then they made... You know, they. You know, it is. It's very hard to find someone more handsome than Matt Dillon, and they needed. Obviously, they needed. <laughs> yeah, they needed somebody who was just uh, better looking than Matt. I think they. W- and they I think struck they out. wanted the. Do they get the quiet dog or do they get the loud dog? And I, I think they went with the quiet dog. Sure. Yes, what Flea would have brought was very different than a what you more brought. But Flea was great in his next movie, Mon Prime in Idaho. He's think. a very talented. Yeah, he's I, a, Flea's awesome. In fact, you know what? Guy. I bought. Flea's old house in Los Feliz uh, from him. I mean, like, no real estate broker. I just called him up and said, hey, Michael, I hear you're going to sell a house. and uh, You want to 
Can I buy it? What do you do want? Do you still for it? have it, or did you then sell? No, I sold it to somebody else. But um, and you live in New York now? Yeah, since two thousand nine. In the city? Yeah, in the Bowery. Do you like living here? Love it. I mean, I still have my place in Wyoming. Sure. Um, in Jackson Hole, and we kind of go back and forth. But I'm, you know, we're here mostly now. So you're doing, uh, you do drugs to cowboy, and you you have this very freeing experience. In a yeah, way. you know, it was very detail oriented, and, and and you know, it was a great chance to do character work that that uh, was going to be appreciated. And I think everybody, and the great thing about that movie, from the script supervisor, uh, Jane Goldsmith, to the DP, Bob Yeoman, to the director, Gus, to, on down the line to the transportation captain, everybody was doing the same movie. Yeah, that's a huge thing. And that just doesn't happen all that often. Well, they're all great people. Bob Yeoman went on to shoot all of Wes Anderson's movies. He's yeah. one of the great yeah. cinematographers. You know, and there was even a period in that movie, I remember, they were, they were like a little disappointed with Bob, you know, and his work. I mean, I'm just, I'm not making anything. I mean, they were like, I don't know, Bob. And Bob came back at him and was like, okay, well, uh, I understand what you want, but that takes time. So I can do that. But not on this schedule. Oh, that's awesome. And and he was right. Well, that's the cinematographer's and kind of, battle all the time. And they redid the schedule. They cut out some locations. They, and, and and the work is is amazing. Well, the, the movie I mean, he did a great beautiful. job. Those he, shots, though, you know, the first time you see Burroughs and then in that yeah. hotel. I mean, just uh, go, just gorgeous. Even just the way. I mean, people. You know, if people don't know that movie, and they're at all interested in photography filmmaking it's beautifully photographed i mean the rob you know those first few robberies just the color scheme yeah uh you, could you just know feel gus, that everything and, and gus's hand was in that too gus was a painter and well, and uh, i've actually worked with a couple two other filmmakers that were painters uh before they became filmmakers huh. todd haynes oh, was well, visual artist brilliant and um, director and Catherine Bigelow did a couple movies with her as well. Well, they're both uh, safe. People haven't seen Safe. That's a an incredible, an amazing film. Film. Which one did you do with him? I did Safe, so, yeah, and then one, I worked on uh, Mildred Pierce with Todd as well. Um, Is Safe where you and Julie got to know one another? That's where we became friends. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. that movie man builds to uh, crescendo, a, unlike any other movie. You know, and that was an interesting movie too, because I remember when that movie went to Sundance. Uh, you know. The first people that went and saw it, you know, distributors and critics, no one had told them that it was brilliant, so they didn't know, so they hated it. Um, okay, that's really important to repeat in a way. That, so I'm going to tell you, those first couple of screenings, there were people getting up and walking out. That's what happened. That's so the just thing because remember, that's a, um, just you know, remember that that's on a very small. Talk about everybody making the same movie. That's a movie w- with a tone that is singular. And unwavering. Miles Davis said it. The hardest thing to be is original. Yeah, it's weird. You know, in a way, it's funny you say that. Like, if you think about Bitches Brew or something, which people hated. Well, not anymore, but they did at the time. They hated Bitches Brew. Yeah. Some people still hate it, but I love that. I I love it it all the time. Um, It's uh, like... You know, innovation is always misunderstood. You know, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, ask Galileo. When when did you... um, He's dead. I can't ask him now. Because he's really dead. Like Franco, still dead. When did you start to feel like um, a sense of control over the the craft? Uh, Where you could... I understand then it's a point of getting to be where you're open and present and not worried about control. But, you know, because uh, on the one hand, you say you want to be that. And on the other hand, you want to deliver for a director. 
Like, when did you start to feel like, okay, I, this is a craft that I can really wrap my arms around. I understand that. You know, I can't really point to it on a timeline. I just, you get to a certain point where you feel like, uh, I'm not worried about what I'm going to do. Because you know that's going to be, you're going to be in the pocket somehow. Well, I mean, I think it'll be, you know, it's going to be what it is. I mean, it's not. You know, it's like I have this. I know this writer, Kieran Mulroney, and he was like, you know, it's like Campbell's tomato soup. I mean, do you need to know? I mean, right. it's like you know what yeah. it is. It's going to come in. It's going to be great. Right. That's a very, in a weird way, empowering way to think about yourself because it takes a lot of pressure off and just allows you to be the thing you are. Yeah, I think so. I think you know. I don't know, but I mean, there's always a little bit of insecurity with all of it. I, you know, you just have to get fired once to know that it's not like, always going to be. Yeah, try being a screenwriter. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, uh, but when, when uh, I mean, re- related to this, I mean, I'm always a little bit scared. I mean, I remember on Mildred Pierce, I was a little nervous just because, you know, I was like, oh, those were really great people. And they were taking, you know, a big chance on someone like me. And, you know, because it was kind of a right. transforming, you know, I was like, it had to be 60 pounds heavier. And I was didn't have the weight when I auditioned. And, you know, so what I, year was that? Uh, I want to say it was 2010. Right. I was going to say it was late. Like it was, uh, you know, late in your career. And you're still, because ad- you're still auditioning. Then. I, I, I'm saying I'm, you're willing to go audition. I'm always willing to go audition. I read all the time. I mean, for a little, some things, not so much. No, of course you're not going to for a small independent movie. But uh, I, I'm saying you're still willing to go do your thing and deal with whatever the result well, is. Well, let me tell you, this is the great thing about auditioning. This is the great, and this is what was great about auditioning for that. Tell me. Is that... If you've gone through those hoops, right, that means there's a bunch of people that signed off on you along the way. Yeah. So you're not so easily disposable. Right. You know, because they all have a stake in it. They're they're, they're vested in you because they were like, oh, yeah, this guy. We had him in. We wanted to, this is this guy. And so you gained the what you knew, okay, I'm taking, I'm going to take a risk by being in this, and they're going to take a risk on me. Yeah, and and I understood, you know, and I understood, and then I also felt like, you know, I just, I just, I just want to do a really good job. You know, all these people are so talented, and, you know, and I just don't want to blow it, right? Really? So, so well, on the, so on the one hand, you cannot feel that way too. So, well, I think fear is a good thing, though. I think, and this is the other thing. I think, and it doesn't always work a lot of times, but I think a thing that can happen to a, a seasoned actor is uh, like even for auditioning. Or even doing a job, you know, when you don't get nervous anymore, I I think that there are certainly some benefits out of that. But I think ultimately it's a liability. Huh, you're so right. When you, you have to have no nerves, no, because it, it's um, a manifestation of excitement. There's Being some alive. there's some energy. I don't exactly know how to characterize it, but it's like, and and yep. I wish this. I don't remember the guy who told me. Some guy at a I met in Canada said this it's his line I wish I could remember the guy's name but you know everybody gets the butterflies but what the trick is to get those butterflies to fly in formation oh that's great and that is the that's the sort of working metaphor that I have and, and if you're lucky enough then it doesn't always work out sometimes you, you know you just choke and you stink um, here's the thing don't feel bad about not remembering the guy's name because if he's a Canadian he's used to it <laughs> It's gonna be Bruno. Oh, you know we we go up there, we do our thing. Uh, But uh, I love Canada, and um, I love working there. I just uh, worked there. Though I love working in New York the most, which I'm getting to do now. Isn't working in New York the greatest thing ever? When I was on Girls, 
It was so fantastic. How to just walk to work. That's another show they improvise a lot on. Yeah, how wonderful was it to be uh, asked to do that? I love working on that show. I loved working on that show. You did like so, four episodes, right? Yeah, yeah. It was so much fun. You know, that, that, but see, my journey on the show, I was at the very beginning of their journey. Did, did you get the sense that Lena knew sort of like the iconography you were bringing to the table when she cast you? You know, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I mean, think, do you feel that when you walk on the sets with like young people that they're aware you're like the living in oblivion, drugstore cowboy? You know, I guess guy. Lena in a slight sense, but you know, Lena, it's funny, Lena had, right before she started working on that, she worked on this... Well, she'd done the great movie, Tiny Furniture, which I love. Yes, and then she worked as an actress on a movie I think that Ty West was directing. And the crew that was on that movie had been a crew that was on another movie that I had worked on just before that. And um, they... So part of Lena got... To, uh, was introduced to me in, in another way from other people having worked with them. They had their quote on the call sheet was something I had said, which was, okay, do we go for the gold or do we stay within our skill set? <laughs> <laughs> that you had said. Right? Which I guess apparently carried over to the other film. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, See, that's the effect. That's the Legro effect. <laughs> I don't these know. things linger because the joke I was you know the joke you told us in the middle of the night I mean I've told on every set I've ever been on it's a winner people and like I that always joke. do uh, my impression of you telling it <laughs> uh, and uh, I've I've told the joke now for eleven years at least once every show we're not going to tell it now but I, I do have a, one, a serious question yeah. another, which is because part of this whole thing of being unreasonable and keeping going and all that stuff is. Part of the thing that you've witnessed is you've kind of been right next door to people on a rocket ride to stardom. I, I feel like that's my job is to bring people. <laughs> Phil Hoffman, I think his first, I know his first picture was with me, uh, My New Gun, many years ago. Yeah. Uh, the first scene that a movie Will Smith shot was Where the Day Takes You. Right. Um, I love that movie. You know, uh, although Drew Barrymore was an established actor, her first really adult performance that was held in high regard was on gun crazy i worked with i can go on at nausea well people say that that i was doing him but i didn't uh but the, the truth, you know what the truth is oh you 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 were you know brad had been in the movie right before you that tom had done and Didn't, then uh but tom, here's the here's the true story okay tom whatever tom's feelings were about brad which I imagine were the idea is that Brad was in a movie called uh, Johnny, Johnny Swade, Swade and then, which he's great. He's always great. And then I mean, I'm a huge fan of Brad. Just as a, as an just as a just as an, a little aside, uh, I stay with Catherine Keener frequently when I go out to L.A. and she has a guest house that she's made available to me for many many years. God bless her. And uh, and above her in her bathroom, above the toilet, is a picture of her and Brad. In Johnny Suede, in the bathtub where she's shaving him. So every time I take a piss... You look at Brad. I look at Brad. <laughs> she, I, she, I've, I've gotten to spend like uh, just a couple hours with her in my life. She's got one of the great life forces of anyone I've oh, ever she's met. She's amazing. Just She's a dear, dear friend. I was actually friends with her when she, before that movie, when uh, she was in the casting business. She's uh, just Many an incredible actor. Just amazing. Um, so... You were saying Tom DeShiller, regardless of his feelings. Okay, so whatever complicated feelings Tom had about Brad and their, you know, journey through that film, 
He asked Brad to do that part first. Well, sure. I was the B choice, or maybe even the C choice. I don't know where I, you know, where I ended up. You somehow the... gave Brad a cosmic push to stardom. Uh, you know, I think. Uh, did you have a sense that that movie would be quoted? Like, did you know that that movie that, that anytime you'd walk in? Because I mean, I can't imagine you ever walk onto a set when someone doesn't say, "Roll the camera, Wolf." Like when when less, the lines were less that movie, in the last few years, just because time marches on. But there was a period, yeah, where everybody reference that you must still get it a little but yeah being around this rocket ride like with all these people did you ever say to yourself like why hasn't that particular thing happened to me or were you like well uh, maybe everybody's a human being i guess imagine everybody asks themselves that question once more but not so much yeah because you were able to because what i'm interested in is how you were able to look at it in a more sort of like hey i have this great life and i'm working with a like how did you you know, how did you look at that and then sort of not, because you say bitterness is the enemy, how did well, you look I at it and not become that, bitter? I think that, you know, comparison, for someone like me, you know, the trajectory is compare and despair. And, I, I don't, you know, you can get certain things by looking at other people as an example, but everybody is working with a different path. And um, it's easily, you can get confused easily. So yes, I try not to think about other people and what they've got how did you train yourself to do that because it's so hard to do well i think it's just borne out in the evidence of things you know it's like there's a like a cliche that history repeats itself yeah which isn't really true um if you look at the course of long history there's many nuanced differences and things might seem the same but there's significant and important differences what what repeats itself is the pattern of human behavior that repeats itself? Yes. Um, and so I think if you're looking at on a more micro level, you just kind of have to keep an eye on what you're doing. I found just you know with career, you know everybody has personal career jealousy farts. They smell very horrible, and hopefully you're not around anybody when that happens. We're human beings. This that will, should go on the next call sheet that I'm going to have. That's like the greatest quote. You know, and it's, it's, a very, it's, it's, it's an odious and awful thing, but, and everybody gets that sometimes. But on the whole, uh, not so much. You're just able to know. I just, you know. I just know there's too many differences in everybody's journey. It just it doesn't work that way. Was fame ever a driver for you in this thing? Well, here's the great thing about fame. Uh, in the movie television business, you, the, with that you you get a lot more options of yeah. work, um, and then I think, and with that too, you also you you're in a position of actually probably greater insecurity because I think the higher up you go, yeah, the fall, the fall is even further. But also, you know, everybody you engage with. You know, you're trying to like figure out what's this person's agenda. The transactional nature of the interaction. Yeah, and it can be really, I think that can be a very lonely place. Um, So, but for someone like me, if they're talking to me, it's because they probably like me. Right. Your level of fame. (laughs) Because I can provide nothing for them. Right. You have a, I mean, you have a really great level of fame because you can walk into a a party and people want to talk to you. Sure. And Sometimes it's not, but it's not um, so intrusive as to like you can't go walk a dog. I, I was having dinner with a really famous actor last night, and I mean he's just crazy famous. And you know he was telling me the story that they were on this cruise for the day. It was like a family. Oh no, it was a bat mitzvah, and so they were on the ship all day. And 
But what they didn't know is like you couldn't get off the boat. Like once you were on the boat, you were, it was like 12 oh, so he was hours. Trapped. He was trapped. And he was like literally cornered, you know, in selfie hell <laughs> for, you know, 12 hours. Right. I guess that's why like on Twitter, I saw all those Judd Hirsch pictures. Okay, so. <laughs> right. Not Judd Hirsch, but, you know, he's like, oh, God, this... <laughs> And yeah. that's the price that they don't tell you about, Dr. Sure. Faustus. Well, that helps this you. Is- yes, that helps you. Uh, I'm not Dr. Faustus, but yes. Um, do you, yeah. lastly, do you feel like um, the creative people in the, in, the, in the movie business, by and large, have recognized what you do, like understand the thing that you can And that's the, the problem, yes. They've recognized it, and that's actually the problem. <laughs> well... Listen, man, uh, I have to say, uh, I love seeing you on Twitter. When you showed up on Twitter, oh, it made yeah. me so happy that, that you were like, oh, look, there's James out there in, <laughs> like, ready to uh, be uh, talking to people. Sure. So people can find you at... Yeah, my name, James LeGrow. James LeGrow on Twitter. Yeah. Do uh, you have anything coming out that you want to tell people about that they should look uh, for? Let's see. I just finished Kelly Reichardt's movie, which doesn't have a title yet, but it's... Uh, Kelly Reichardt put together a great cast. Laura Dern, um, uh, Jared Harris, Kirsten Stewart, Michelle Williams, and bringing up the rear, James LeGrow. And James LeGrow. And Le Rene Aubergenois. Well, all right. So we got to all see that movie. Uh, and then before that, I did a picture called, oh, God, what the hell was it called? This is terrible. I'm losing hey, my listen, mind. Listen, here's what people should do. They should go back and watch Drugstore Cowboy, Living in Oblivion, and they should go to watch Mil- Mildred Pierce. Oh, yeah, Mildred Pierce. And there are so many wonderful uh, things that you've done. I don't think you've done uh, enough comedy. I don't think people understand how funny okay, you are. Okay, so the one I did up in Canada, Garden People, that my friend Nadia Litz wrote and directed. Is that, that a comedy? That's, got, that's sort of funny. It's a melancholy comedy. I think it's going to be good. Uh, because and I like the Shakespeare movie that you made too. Oh Scotland, yeah, Scotland, Pennsylvania. Scotland, PA. Yeah. Um, that modern take on Macbeth. I yeah, love that Macbeth movie. Macbeth and the fast food business. Really, more is a close. View. It was just over my house the other night for dinner. Great dark uh, movie. I love seeing you in that. Thanks, uh, James Agro. Thank you for doing this. Really fun to get to talk to you. And um, we're going to turn this off, and you're going to tell me um, who the actor is who works that way, and who you were with last night who's famous. Absolutely. Uh, thanks, people. You can find me uh, at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me, uh, themomentbk at gmail.com. I read everything. I'm very slow to respond now, but I do respond um, as long as you don't send me a screenplay, a TV idea, a song lyric, a request to get an autograph from James. Those things will go in the trash, but anything else, (laughs) I will do my best uh, to answer. Uh, Thanks for listening to The Moment. We'll see you next time. On the latest episode of our national conversation about conversations about race, uh, we have three co-hosts diving into a number of subjects, including myself, Baratunde Thurston. Our normal co-host, Raquel Cepeda, is out, but Anand Girdardas is in. And Tanner Colby is with us. We talked about a bunch of things, like such as... Beautiful hafus. The bamboo ceiling. And Everybody Draw Muhammad Day. So check us out at showaboutrace.com or find us in iTunes.